Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And today's podcast is also brought to you by Gabby Insurance. Today, we're joined by Martin Gorey, author of The Revolt of the Public. This is a book about how technology categorically reversed the information balance of power between the public and the elites who manage the great hierarchical institutions of the industrial age, government, politics, parties, the media. So today we're talking about the failures of trust in authority figures, the role of tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and the colossal sociopolitical experiment he predicts is coming this summer. Let's dive right in. Joining us today is exciting. Uh, Martin Gorey is a former CIA analyst. He specializes in the relationship of politics and the global media, as I said. And I mean, before we get into to anything about what's going on in current events, which I'm dying to talk to you about, uh, can you tell us what you what your normal day looked like at the CIA with what you were doing there? Well, I probably had the least sexy job in CIA. I, I, I did not have a license to kill. Um, <laughs> I was um, a media analyst, a global media analyst, and um, I was fortunate enough uh, to have been in that job, which gave me access to the media of the world and, when necessary, in translation. Um, when what I call this this gigantic tsunami of digital information hit the world, uh, pretty much at the beginning of a century. So my normal day consisted, depending on what part of the world I was analyzing, obviously, of looking at this masses. Of, actually, if you want the transition, my original day was very easy and very straightforward. I would look at a couple, <laughs> at a couple of newspapers, say, in France, and you knew exactly what was going on. And then suddenly, a few years later, I'm overwhelmed with these masses of material that are coming out from the digital world and trying to make sense of them. And, and everything that I, I have thought about and, and um, written about uh, pretty much flows from that experience. So recently, you've been writing about truth. And uh, here's a couple lines that you've said that seem to circle around the same idea. The crisis of authority has always been at heart a crisis of integrity. Truth is a function of trust and pertains to the authority of the source. You seem to apply this uh, to a lot of things going on in 2020, and Lord knows there are a lot of things going on in 2020. Uh, how do you view that? And what do you, where do we go from here when it comes to the death of expertise? Yeah, that second question is a bit of a monster. So I'll take the first one. Um, okay. um, I, I mean, this is way precedes 2020. I, I, I think um, part of part of the um, effect of that digital tsunami I was talking about has been a, a, a fracturing of uh, of opinion by the public. We no longer have to uh, sort of be channeled by political parties or political commentators. Um, and secondly, it has been a collapse in the authority of the elites who used to mediate. Uh, reality for us. Reality hasn't changed. Uh, I always try to make sure that I'm not talking about some kind of postmodernistic view of life. You know, if you're standing in the street and a truck is bearing down on you, you still best get out of the way. <laughs> but there is such a thing as mediated reality, shared reality. That's what we make our 
personal and our social and our political decisions on. And today there is uh, an immense and near infinite number of perspectives, often contradictory and conflicting uh, on every subject and every event. And there is no authority in the room to make sense out of that, to, to settle the disputes. So to borrow your analogy, uh, the truck is bearing down on you. You should still get out of the way. But we're disagreeing on who's driving the truck, what the motives are of that truck heading towards you, whether you should jump left or right. And that's where there's no consensus and there's no one to say what the answer is. Is that Unfortunately, even where there is a truck bearing down, whether the <laughs> truck is a good thing, whether getting hit by a truck is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, almost everything is in dispute. Every aspect of political, social, and almost even personal life these days is contested. Steve, you've talked a lot about this in our conversations. Yeah, I, I have. I mean, it, it's it's a there's a very clear sort of battle taking place, and I think it it comes with the profusion of information outlets that you've mentioned. I'm very interested to to understand more about the changes that you saw as you watched this unfold on a, in a professional way um, during your time at the CIA and then in subsequent years. What are the differences between the kinds of news? I'm talking about the substance and the quality of information, um, and we should distinguish between news and information, that you saw coming through news when it was more heavily mediated, as you explained, versus what you're seeing now. What kinds of substantive differences do you see? Um, well, first of all, I would uh, the whole subject of what is news is an interesting question that we maybe can tackle later. I don't make much of a distinction between news and any other kind of information. Um, secondly, it, it has to do with volume. It really is a, not a question of quality. It's a question of quantity. Um, what we watched was a very contained um, trickle of open information uh, become this huge, I mean, for, for human, for the perspective of a human brain, might as well be an infinite amount. You can't ever get from one end of it to the other, ever, okay? If you spend the rest of your life doing it every waking moment. So what that, uh, what that gigantic amount of information has done is it's some, it has undermined uh, the institutions that mediated uh, our, our um, reality uh, to those of us who can't be everywhere at all times and want to find out what's going on in the world. I think what's happening now is that fracturing. And, and I think that fracturing uh, basically has, I mean, it's, it's, it's again, a gigantic number of opinions, but they, they tend to coalesce in what I call war bands. There are these, these political war bands that basically take one stake and uh, and instead of um, arguing, of course, if you if you are debating the truth, you're not going to argue to persuade another person. You're arguing that your facts are truth and the other person's facts are lies. So it becomes sort of like a holy war. It's it's not uh, the olden days. People tried to persuade the 20th century. It was very limited. It was very elitist. Uh, and and um, it, it was not particularly a democratic model of, of, uh, of information, but there was an attempt to persuade. Today, there is an attempt to kind of just impose, impose your facts. It doesn't work because nobody owns that sphere, that information sphere. So it's a, it's a, it's a gigantic battleground in which the uproar kind of leaves you dazed and confused. I think. So is the net, is the net effect of that poor information? I mean, it is a, 
it, of course, it's a quantity issue, but it is also a quality issue, right? I mean, if you look back, just to look at the U.S. media, um, you know, look back at these sort of pre-internet um, days, and you can make an argument that the information was uh, was in some ways better and more authoritative. There was a collective sense of of what the the news was, of the the, the basic facts of things were. Um, but on the other hand, as you suggest, that it came to us largely through these elites, I would say largely in New York City, working at the New York Times and the networks, telling us what was important and, and what mattered. Now, on the other hand, you have this mad cacophony of disparate voices, uh, in many ways, adding voices to the information streams that, that we're getting is, is a good thing. But it's also the case that to be heard over those, over the, you know, to, to stand out among all of the many voices, it incentivizes certain kinds of behavior. Many of those behaviors, I would argue, are, are a net negative. Is that fair? Um, yeah, uh, but two things. Okay, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a young man. For those those who can't see my face, uh, that would be obvious if you could. Um, uh, and I'm old enough to remember when the upper left-hand corner of the op-ed page of the Washington Post, I live in this, outside of Washington, um, had Walter Lippmann as a columnist. So I think about that and I weep a little bit when I think about his successors, okay? So yes, but that was a very narrow world. It was a very controlled world. And everything that is bad about the present moment, uh, you t say about incentivize, all it has done is open doors, right? So in a way, if you wanna blame anything, you have to point the finger back at us. And this, this, this problem at some weird moment, I feel, and, and I'm very um, uncomfortable talking about it, but why not, um, becomes a moral problem, okay? You and I and everyone, we, um, support just by give, by our, our giving our attention primarily by giving our money, giving our, our um, um, endorsements. This system, it would not be so unless the public supported it. Okay, um, so at at a, at a certain moment, we each have to kind of go deep into, inside ourselves and say, what can we do to um, disincentivize this? You've talked about the role that these digital platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Google, yeah. play in this. Uh, and you noted recently, least comment on, but possibly of greatest significance, the most disrupt, uh, disruptive forces in democratic political life, these platforms, um, have actually been pointing users to established institutions and blocking non-credentialed voices. And as you put it, once that line is crossed, opportunities for dispensing authorized knowledge can only multiply. Information controls justified by concerns about health and safety have already been applied to public opinion. Politicians and bureaucrats, citing the noblest ideas, will push hard to expand this trend, meaning to go back to a system of more controlled opinion voices. Yeah. I mean, ever since Trump won in 2016, there has been... So, so basically, the forces of disruption gathered uh, force uh, that I described in my book. Uh, I, I always call myself a, a Trump profiteer. That once <laughs> Trump, once Trump won, everybody kind of got the book. Uh, and 
one ev- effect of that was a, a, a massive reaction. People who f- did get it, finally, what I was saying, that, the, that this uh, new information environment had created a new political environment in which something like Trump's election was possible. Uh, and their response, unfortunately, has been led by the elites and the elites in both parties uh, and the elites in all institutions, not just uh, politics. And it, it, to me, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's reactionary in the sense that they look at the 20th century as the golden era, Steve. I think you were just kind of alluding to that. Um, and, and, and they say, well, why can't we go back to that? In those days, man, I used to tell people what was right and what was wrong. And some other elite might dispute with me, but it was so polite and it was so nice. And we each had our guaranteed audience because we were all a mass audience and we couldn't talk back. And those people who are now yelling back at us would, would, would be silenced. And I think um, this kind of turning of the platforms in that direction uh, follows that, that, that pattern is let's, let's not, let's not have the uproar from below. Let's have authorized knowledge. I think obviously with the, the, the trigger for that was the pandemic. It made perfect sense to turn um, information towards authoritative sources, though I have to say those sources did not cover themselves in glory in, in in the in the crisis either but but at least you weren't saying people should drink bleach or something and, and killing themselves so um you were you were funneling searches towards people who were uh at least educated and authoritative and had institutions that that they could they could use for for their authority but then of course you're using those same protocols um for example to uh fact check trump basically to to um, it, it, now you're erupting into political opinion. Uh, so so where do those digital platforms go from here? Because I think the most interesting part of this is that they were seen as what opened up the conversation to all the non-elites. Yes. And now you're predicting, I think, a future where actually that's about to contract using the same platforms. A, if you ever read anything I have written, I never predict a thing. You, you want to be... <laughs> Not- that's not true. Just this week, you said, I'll stand by my one prediction. We're going to get you know, to that. You know, and I kind of held my breath and said, I have never said that before. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, yep. yep. I, I do, I, you want to be wrong? Make a forecast. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I, I think the platforms are just the obvious battleground between this restless public that has had the upper hands over the last 20 years in a way that the elites, I mean, the thing that's kind of fascinating is when these protests erupt uh, and they, as they have erupted in different places under different political systems. But when you think about it, modern society is organized very similarly. And so if you have a dictatorship or if you have a democracy, you still have a modern style of government with very hierarchical ministries and so forth. Every time, every time these things happen, governments are clueless. They go, where do these people come from? We haven't given them permission to do this. Where are where are their their platforms? Where are their positions? What what where are their organizations? Who are their leaders? None of those things apply. None of those things apply. So I think now finally there is a a, a pushback on that. They're, they're realizing that no, it's not the people in the street that matter. It's these platforms that allow these people to organize and show up on the streets. And they're a battleground. I am not predicting anything. I actually am skeptical that they can be controlled. I am sick. And if they are, something else will come up that will funnel all that um, disruption. 
I think I think one of the challenges you, you look back and just to, to look at the most recent example inside the pandemic, you look back at the attempts to direct people to what were regarded as authoritative sources like the WHO. And you see that the information provided by the WHO in several cases was not accurate, was bad information, um, which further erodes, I think, the, the sort of general s- sense or the, 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 what was, you know, decades ago, the deference to authority because people say, wait, the WHO was telling us that uh, they had this information from China and the information turns out to be bad. The WHO was not rec- recommending wearing masks and masks, it turns out, are, are positive influence. Does the pandemic in particular, I think, is, a, is a, uh, a, a worth a deeper look. You look at public health experts and epidemiologists in the United States who, you know, I think largely on, on their authority directed our response, directed the federal government to advise shutdowns. You had the CDC guidelines, you had the state guidelines, um, basically saying we, we can't allow people to freely associate. We can't allow families to gather for funerals. Weddings have to be called off. Um, and then you have what we've seen over the past several weeks with these protests, gatherings, literally in some cases, of hundreds of thousands of people. And not only do you not have warnings from many of the very same public health experts and epidemiologists who had said, you can't gather in groups more than 10, you have them cheering on these mass gatherings that weeks earlier they had condemned as potentially deadly. Does this, obviously you can tell from the way I'm framing this, that it bothers me is this likely to have longer term effects or is this something that that goes away in six weeks or six months? This, these particular protests you're talking about? I mean, the erosion you know, of authority. Does this affect the way that we think, not just about epidemiologists, but broadly about whether we should believe people who are regarded as experts? Pick an institution. Yes, of course, it's been happening for, for at least 20 years and it's going to continue. And I think and I keep saying this and sound a little bit like, I mean, it sounds so abstract, but the great political question of our day is not left versus right. It's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's not this policy versus that policy, immigration. It's how do we restore authority to democratic institutions? In the end, these are democratic institutions. We are part of them. We are them. Uh, So they are not, they have lost their bleeding authority. They're bleeding authority. They're practically uh, prone on, on the ground. Nobody trusts them. You, you can you can read the surveys. Nobody trusts them, and yet they are ours. We elect these people. We they they are the result of what we do. How do we restore authority, to some degree? And what's the, what's the answer to your own question? How how is that possible? <laughs> I mean, you you wrote in your your late May article uh, about uh, uh, the post truth world and a way out of the post-truth world. The headline itself suggesting some level of optimism from you. You think there is a way out. What does it look like? Well, I mean, part of what has to happen, which is not happening, is there has to be an acceptance that the world has changed, an acceptance by the elites. And by elites, I I mean specifically people who are ensconced in the big institutions. 
doesn't have to be politics. You know, if you are in a university, uh, you're a professor, that, that counts. Um, but there has to be an acceptance of the tidy old world of I write and I, I get published in a journal and my buddies peer review me and, and so forth, as happens in science. That, that doesn't work anymore. It just doesn't work anymore. So, so we have to come up with protocols. We have to come up with rhetoric. I mean, part, part of what has to change is it, we, we have a rhetoric that we have uh, through a legacy from, from the industrial age where you are supposed to know, if you're a politician, you're supposed to give answers to questions that nobody has answers for. So invariably you get elected on something that you have no idea how to resolve. And invariably at the end of four years, you get treated like a failure and mostly you are. Now, maybe you have actually succeeded to some degree. And maybe if you had said, we will try and turn this around and let's do trial and error, um, you would now not now be in the position of having said something that, that you can be held uh, accountable against. But no politician today is going to get elected unless he says, I'm going to make you happy. I'm going to solve your problems. I'm not going to give you a job. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We, are, again, are it's, it's easy to look, and people do that uh, endlessly today, and point the finger and blame that and blame the other. It's us. It's the public. We elect these people because they tell us that. Then they get there, and they can't do it. So I think part of what has to do, you, you want to, you want to uh, sort of detoxify that. Um, we have to, I mean, if, if, a, if a politician said, I don't know to an answer to a question, I, I'd vote for that person. I don't care if he's a communist, okay? I'll vote for that person, okay? Be because you, having a politician admit to ignorance is reality. That's true reality. It's not the old media, mediated reality of the 20th century. It's the reality of the world. We are very ignorant. The pandemic was... Uh, expose the degree to which human knowledge is shallow and, and to which we really don't understand the world. So the experts, the people who knew the most, didn't know that much, but they had to pretend that they did. And that's where you get in trouble. You've talked about humility in the news context as well. How yeah. do you apply what you just said to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fox News? Yeah. I mean, the problem there is they have to make money, right? So it's not like they're in it for... Um, you know, the virtue or the, all the things that they claim to be, you know, informing the public or, or producing objective information or anything like that. They're in it for the money. So to get the money, they, they carve out an, a, a niche audience and then they, they pitch to that. So I think, honestly, fixing Fox News or fixing uh, New York Times shouldn't be our job. Uh, our job should be to put those uh, streams of information in their proper, proper perspective, which is, among other streams of information, they they have no privilege. They have they are not uh, in any sense more complete, more objective, more important than many other streams that come up. With the, you know, point to the Dispatch as one. I had not quite been I knew about it, but I had not quite been aware of, of in, in detail uh, what you guys are doing. I think that's an interesting experiment. Uh, I would I would hope that you succeed. Um, there are many little experiments like that are going on that deserve our attention way more than Fox News or the New York Times. You know, one person that you signaled uh, singled out for criticism is Anthony Fauci. Uh, you've talked about the mask uh, uh, situation. You've also talked about his flip on lockdowns. As of late February, he saw no reason to lock down the country. Six weeks later, he opposed ending the lockdowns because it would backfire. And you've used that as an example of uh, an authority figure undermining their own trust in authority. What advice do you have to experts 
to build that uh, authority back? And what happens when, you know, in the Anthony Fauci case, for instance, um, what happens when you said something wrong and now you need to fix it? Yeah, I mean, come on. This is what happens to us every day of our lives. I mean, how many of us are correct 100% of the time? But we expect that of experts. We want them to be correct 100% of the time. Well, if we expect that, then we're all going to be shocked by the fact that they're not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, I actually was, uh, and I'm sorry that it came across as critical of Fauci. I was really being critical of the people who sort of deified him as some sort of um, oracle that we could go to for truth with a capital T when it came to the pandemic. The poor man got put up there and he started talking and he gave us the best he had at any particular moment and contradicted himself all over the place, okay? Uh, as we all do, and maybe, maybe he, he like I am, is, is not a young man, uh, maybe he was raised in that era where you were not supposed to say, well, we don't really know, but this is what we think now. And maybe, don't hold me accountable, we'll, we'll, we'll explore that possibility, and if it changes, we'll let you know. That's really a scientific method. You know, scientific method never ends. You never close it. You know, there, there's never a consensus. There's a, it is open. It's open. And when you have a fast-moving, uh, brand-new threat like, like the um, COVID-19 pandemic, um, well, I mean, mostly on that, on that knowledge sheet, it's blank. We don't know. Most of what we don't know is immense. What we know is a little. And, and he maybe should have said that. <laughs> so you... you point to the New York Times and, and the networks and other big media institutions and suggest that, you know, look, they're, they're just making money. They're, in effect, giving us what we want. Yeah. So the market's working, right? I mean, if, 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 this, if this is what the market is giving us and this is what we collectively are saying we want by, you know, subscribing to those institutions or watching those channels, um, is is there even a problem? What's the problem then? I mean, well, I think at a sort of superficial basis, you're 100 percent right. They're giving us what we want. Um, if you go just like half an inch deep, though, I don't I don't think that's right. I think uh, there are gigantic niches out there that nobody's filling. And if you ask uh, the public, you you read the um, uh, the surveys and so forth. There, nobody's happy. Nobody's happy with Fox News. Nobody's happy with the New York Times. They have zero trust. They have zero trust. The, the, the collapse in trust for um, mainstream news uh, since you know the, the late 20th century has been catastrophic. Catastrophic. The problem seems to be um, a a lack of imagination. There is there are open spaces out there that can be explored that nobody seems to be exploring. And then B, there is that elite um, reaction. It's that we don't want to explore those spaces. We want to go back to the way it was, okay? Um, so I, I think, um, yeah, in a, in, in a status quo sense, we're getting what we're asking for. So in that sense, we go back to the moral dilemma. Why are we supporting these things? Why? Even if I support something um, in terms of my political opinion, why do I choose something that is so clearly distorting of the other the other side? Because by doing that, now you, you're kind of warping, you're going through the looking glass into post-truth. Um, 
why not support you know a stat publication like like what uh, was was uh, during the pandemic this little outfit called stat that was so um, I mean they don't have they didn't have half the people that New York Times put on the pandemic coverage and they did so much better. So why don't we find out there in this vast universe of information those um, islands and 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 uh, the, the, those explorers that are blazing a new trail to much more balanced, much more civil, much more sane uh, rhetorical and informational styles, uh, and support them. Do, but support do, them. do people want those if they're not, you know, taking their if they're not following their feet if they're not giving them their dollars do people want that or do people want the shouting and the screaming and the the rants that you you have argued the digital environment so incentivizes why should we put it this way why should we believe what people tell pollsters instead of believing what people do well people don't do i mean i think i think the mainstream news has has um as a business has suffered pretty dramatically in, in, in the last um, 20 years. So a lot of people are walking away from that. But Although the New York um, Times is, is growing significantly and gaining subscribers, uh, places like The yeah. Atlantic, um, Fox News, others are seeing their, their stars rise. And they're very different institutions, obviously. Yeah, and when you look at the numbers from the 20th century and you look at the numbers with those, the ones you cited, even from the 20th century, when a population was a third less than it is now, those numbers are tiny compared to what, say, CBS News could summon mm. on any given 7 p.m. on any given weekday. All right. When Walter Cronkite stood up and told us that's the way it was. Let's pause right here and talk about our sponsor today. Gabby, we're all looking for ways to save money these days. When's the last time you looked at how much you're spending every month on car insurance, on homeowners insurance? Now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, Travelers. You just link to your current insurance account and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes from the exact same coverage you already have. Think Travelocity, Kayak. It's the same thing, but for insurance. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate out there and they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. And that's really important. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take two minutes right now, well, after this podcast to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to gabby.com slash Dispatch. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash dispatch. Gabby dot com slash dispatch. You've talked about this summer being a great sociological experiment. Yeah. Uh, and you said on the one side, you have the reflexive obedience to authority, particularly around the virus. And on the other side, you have a near absolute repudiation of the rules of the system, as you put it. Uh, so I want to know for this summer in the sociological, the colossal sociopolitical experiment that you said is your one prediction, what are you looking for? Uh, how will you judge the outcome of that experiment? That's a really good question. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I That whole um, idea, I mean, it was clear to me, okay, that um, given 2019, which had been... Um, I mean, we'd like to talk about exponential growth 
I think uh, what I call uh, the public in revolt. This is political disruption that, that erupts from below and has happened globally and it has happened to every political system. Uh, when it came to 2019, it, it, it hit some, some kind of crazy peak. Okay. I, I mean, I counted like more than two dozen um, really significant street revolts in, in, in 2019. And, um, it doesn't even count the, the populist elections like Boris Johnson in Britain and so forth. Um, and on that, you suddenly had this pandemic and you had this very artificial lid being put on. Uh, basically, you, you, you put society on an induced political comma, all right? She's going to put a lid on it and waited three months. And my thought was, it's going to blow and it's going to be crazy. That was my thought. You can't let that pressure build for three months. That was bubbling up in 2019. Uh, and all over the world, people have sheltered in place or locked down, whatever you want to call it. And all, all over the world, the Chilean protesters went home. Everybody went home and locked down. Uh, my idea was, so what happens? And I had a conversation with a couple of Europeans who were very firm in thinking that it was going to be the hour of the state, that basically government was going to come out of this looking really good because it had exercised this tremendous, uh, really extraordinary authorities that they don't usually have to protect us from this pandemic. So I thought, well, that's one possibility. And I looked at that. Uh, another one is that we all get back and what we want to do is make money because we've all been losing money and we've all been uh, socially deprived. So we want to get out to the office and make a bunch of bucks and we want to go out to the dance floor and, and have fun and politics, you know, so it's like the roaring twenties was my parallel, right? Or if you want, if you have a more historical frame of mind, it could be restoration England after the uh, Puritans got seen off and suddenly everybody was, was acting pretty scandalously and, and, and they didn't care that some, some uh, pretty mediocre Stuart was King. It's like, let the elites rule. We'll just have fun. So the Roaring 2020s is a possibility, or you can have what I had thought all along might happen, which is you know revolt on steroids. This thing is just going to explode. So um, those are the three possibilities. I'm not making a prediction. I, I, as you can see, I sort of lean towards a third, but I have learned that you cannot predict. This environment is very random. It, it, it's, you, you're floating in such a stream of randomness. Uh, but I, I would be very surprised if there wasn't massive, massive political turbulence in the next six months, certainly in the summer. And let's turn the focus then away from the United States, because you brought up a lot of this is happening worldwide. This isn't unique to us. Uh, you were surprised that the Hungarian parliament ended their extraordinary uh, legal order and is giving back special powers. Because one of the things that you've said is, you know, once that authority is vested, and you're not the only one to say this, uh, authority is very unlikely to give away its authority. So what is... Uh, what do you think happened in Hungary this week? And uh, where do you see the hot spots worldwide now? Well, I mean, Hungary, um, I, uh, honestly, my, my, my knowledge is very shallow of it. And I've been trying for some time to get a grip on Viktor Orban because everybody, everybody writes him up as some kind of authoritarian. And I read up the things that he says. And I mean, it's not like he's touchy-feely, but, um, but, but he... He makes an argument. He makes a case. I mean, the Hungarians are a, a nation that ethnically are unique in that area, right? They're, 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 they and the Romanians, who at least have other uh, Latin-derived uh, languages that they can point to, the, um, the Hungarians have nobody. They're in this ocean of Slavic uh, humanity, and they are 
you know, not reproducing. They have been uh, under the, the, the Soviet boot for, for years. So nationalism in Hungary is not something that you can, you know, say, well, it's like France or it's like the United States. It, it's much different, all right? Uh, and he makes a case based on that history of why he wants to do the things that he's been doing. Um, on the other hand, he seemed to do certain things that seemed to trip over what, you know, normal democratic practice seemed to be. And that moment where he basically said, give me all the authority in the universe. And by the way, it, it's indefinite. I thought, okay, well, now I know he really is like that. But now he's giving it back. So I'm back to my ignorance. I, and the answer is, and see, I like to say this a lot. I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> Steve? Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, Orban, even before he he, uh, asked for and then returned these extraordinary powers, had been authoritarian in a number of different ways, particularly with respect to the way that he treated the free press uh, in Hungary, uh, I think was problematic for for a while. And I think we can be maybe encouraged by the fact that he's returned some of the newly accumulated power. But uh, I think there are reasons to still believe that he has these authoritarian tendencies. Um, just looking forward to the next six months and, and to what uh, is happening here, you know, in the discussion of, of the role of these big tech companies and their attempt to, to I would say, impose some order on this free flow of, of information that we discussed, uh, what's the likelihood that they'll be able to do what they say that they want to do here, that they're going to, to actually be effective in trying to separate truth from fiction? Well, number one, um, they're very divided. I mean, and I, I, again, if, if you listen to, to Mark Zuckerberg, who actually out of that crowd, I find the most interesting person to, to listen to, but he had he is like Hamlet. I mean, it's to be or not to be, all right? He goes back one way and back the other. And one day says, you know, no, we're gonna let you know opinions flow. And the next day you read that the Facebook is is basically taking down something because of it's it's a false opinion or flagging it because it's a false opinion. So it's it's uh they are you know, themselves very divided. It is, let's face it, not an easy job to in this fractured environment, in this post-truth environment, satisfy, what is it, 2 billion people or something that are on Facebook. Um, so I I don't think they themselves have a program. I think they're drifting. I think they respond to events. They respond to criticism. Um, can they do it if they sought to do it? I doubt it seriously. I think we're way past that. I think the information environment, when you look at the dimensions of it, and it's I mean, it is mind-boggling. This is a, a case where quantity became quality. Um, it, 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 it is impossible to block information in this particular environment. If those, uh, it, it, we mistake the information sphere for those gigantic platforms, and it's true, they occupy a big chunk of it, but there is space around them. And if they decide they're going to just kind of give us um, authorized information, that space is going to grow. It's probably going to balloon, in fact. So you're not optimistic about what we're likely to see over the next uh, over the next six months. Is this uh, let's let's just reduce it to to sort of its its simplest point. If you're an average news consumer and you want to find out what's going on and you and you and you care about the truth. Right. I mean, we, we shouldn't I mean. 
there is, you know, truth exists. There, there is truth, or as you say, there is reality. Reality doesn't disappear because we have all these competing versions of it. If you're an average news consumer and you want to find out what's going on and you want to invest in the truth, what's, how do you do that these days? I mean, it's, I think you do it the way you always would have. Number one, let's face it. If you want to be an informed person, the news is the last place you'll go to. All right. Read a book. Read a book. Okay. Uh, there are many, many better ways to acquire context and depth and understanding than watching the news. Now, if you want to rest, uh, restrict yourself to the news, do it the way that it should be done. Always challenge your perspective. We always stand, I always say, truth is truth, reality is reality. But if you're standing at the top of the Empire State Building and you're looking at New York City, it looks like the heavenly city. It looks like the, the, you know, the city of God, okay? If you're standing at the foot of the Empire State Building and there's like a homeless person puking on, on the sidewalk and there's <laughs> gigantic traffic choking you, it looks like, you know, some circle of hell. So perspective on reality gives you very different um, takes on it. So I would try, that's, that's my analytical approach, by the way, is I don't, for example, when I go to these revolts, I don't care what you think of it, Steve, or what I think of it. I say, first of all, what do they think about it? What do they think they're doing in there? And then you start going around the circles, but we're all going to be in the end encased in one perspective. But the more you are aware that there is a difference in perspective, that everybody does not necessarily see New York as a heavenly city or as a circle of hell, there is kind of like a, a range, uh, the more of an informed person you will be. This is not that hard. We don't do it because we don't want to. Okay, I'm going to take the prerogative of last question, Steve. Do it. Uh, so, Martin, you were born in Cuba. You left shortly after Castro came to power. And your career, at least from a complete outsider's perspective, seems to have been informed by a lot of that experience, especially as you're looking at uh, authoritarian disinformation, truth. And I'm wondering how you view that experience on your career and your life's work at this point. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you did not necessarily see it as a positive. Actually, there are positive negatives. <laughs> it's what I said. Um, it's I, very Rumsfeldian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was right. Um, I, I um, basically took away from that experience of any number of things, the best of which is food. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I will say intellectually two things at least um i came away with a kind of an inbred distrust of governments that promised um paradise on earth right just give me power and i'll give you paradise on earth and i you know i, I believe in democracy and i i love the united states and i, I but if, if a politician starts promising paradise on earth i get real nervous all right um number two i I try to avoid politics, true politics in my analysis. I mean, in the end, it's, everything is political, but the Cubans were wonderful people and I'm very proud to be one. But I think we talked before, I mean, you have one Cuban and you have three opinions, okay? I mean, you have two Cubans and you have a civil war. So <laughs> basically it, it's, it's um, 
And, and I have said, you know, if, if you lived in my household, you would hear this a lot. And when I'm watching, I'm looking at my window today and watching the Cubanization of American politics, okay? Um, and I, I feel like um, letting what you want to happen colored very deeply what you think you're seeing is a way to post truth, a way of getting yourself deluded, all right? So one thing I took away from that experience is, um, yes, these are passionately important things, and, and you'd be a fool not to think that, but when you're watching the world and we're trying to analyze it, again, stand back from it and see it from as many perspectives that you disagree with as possible, and then you come up with your, your, your synthesis, your consensus idea in your mind, um, and, and, and don't immediately go to, well, I love this. This should be the way it is. You know, I'm for Trump, therefore, you know, uh, it, it, this is fake news. Oh, no, 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 no. You are against Trump, therefore, you are fake news. No, stand back from that. Stand back from that. That's, I, I think, also having been raised under two different uh, types of dictatorship. Uh, by the time I was 10, I had been in a right wing dictatorship and a left wing dictatorship. And, and, and that never grows old, right? Um, that's part of our, our duty as citizens, is to understand the people that we oppose rather than demonize them. Uh, so Cuban politics demonized a lot, and, and I feel like we we are slipping into that, and, and there are ways to avoid that. Again, I, I, there are incentives, Steve, you're right about that, but mostly it's us, it's us. Well, I misled you because I have one more question. If you could only eat one Cuban dish for the rest of your life, what is your favorite Cuban dish that you would eat? Oh, my God. That's an unfair question. <laughs> I saved the so, hardest one for last. I would say vaca frita, which I'm getting for Father's Day. <gasps> Lovely. Well, happy Father's Day. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really fun conversation. And, uh, and once again, highly recommend your book, The Revolt of the Public. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, hope so. Okay.